What is the best way to support people living in extreme poverty? Could unconditional cash transfers and universal basic income be viable options? How can we know if such programs will work? Today's episode of Stats and Stories focuses on addressing the needs of people living in extreme poverty. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as a panelist is Rosemary Pennington, professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Miriam Laker. Dr. Laker is the Global Director of Research at GiveDirectly and a Senior Research Scientist and Epidemiologist with nearly two decades of experience conducting research. Among her extensive experience, she's led the design of the evaluation plan for GiveDirectly's recently launched Yemen Refugees Program, the learning agenda for large cash for refugees in Rwanda, and the evaluation of cash transfers in, a, in disasters like floods and landslides, the response in Uganda. She was also involved in a recently concluded randomized control trial evaluation of the impacts of large lump sum cash transfers on refugee and host households in Uganda. Miriam, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, to start our conversation, can, can you describe why cash transfers have been proposed for supporting people living in extreme poverty? Um, thank you for asking that question. So the beauty about cash transfers, or I will take a step back and say, people living in poverty have a lot of problems. They're going through a lot of issues. It may be lack of housing. It may be lack of food. It may be, as we know, lots of problems, and it varies not only within the country, but across countries. The great thing about cash transfers is that it allows many different people to meet many different needs at the same time. I mean, how exciting is that? And also cash is like the gift that keeps keeps giving because when one person receives cash, the cash doesn't stay in their pocket. It also helps somebody else in their community and there are more people in the wider community. And I think for me, that is why cash transfers really is an exciting topic. Give Directly has been doing this for a while now. How do you decide what communities you're going to work with? And then how do you evaluate whether the cash transfers were successful in sort of alleviating poverty and, and helping the community? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that question. So Give Directly has been, yes, definitely doing this for a while, working in multiple countries, up to 13 countries right now. Our focus is two groups. So one, uh, we have a development focus, which is focusing on people living in poverty. And the second is focusing on people experiencing humanitarian crisis. I'll talk mainly about our, our development program in answering your question. So usually what we do is we try to use a very objective source of information to identify whether people or community is living in poverty. An example of this is using government census data because government census data is not done knowing that there's a possibility that someone is going to help a particular group of people and therefore tweak to fit that. So we use, for instance, government census data to identify communities that are living in poverty. And then when we go to those communities in Africa, so in countries like Africa, when we go to those communities, we do not target individual households within the community. And this is something we learned from much earlier um, experimental studies that we did, where we identified households based on the quality of roofing that they had, 
And at the end of the day, we found that it led to a lot of conflict in the community. So for mo most of our models, we use what we call uh, demographic saturation, meaning when we identify a poor community, everyone in that community is eligible for cash transfers. Another model that we use is, uh, we call it mobile aid. So in this system, we use people's detailed cell phone data usage to categorize people based on their poverty level. So this is what we initially did in Togo with UC Berkeley and found that uh, detailed cell phone records can actually quite accurately categorize people based on their levels of poverty. So in cases like that, we use that information and are able to identify individuals who will receive cash or sometimes people who are served by cell towers where a lot of people are categorized using their cell phone re records as living in poverty. Sometimes we ingest lists, like when we're working with refugees, for instance, we get lists from like the UNHCR and use those lists to identify the people that we'll give cash transfers to. So those are some of the ways that we do it. Yeah, I, I'm intrigued at this idea of, of conducting the equivalence of a, cl a clinical trial with in the context of, of this as an assessment of a plan such as you've described. So, so if we were to, to kind of break down that trial that you're conducting, can you tell us first mm -hmm. a, a little bit about the, the treatment, no treatment conditions? What, how, you know, how is, you, you told us a little bit about identifying, you know, candidates for treatment just now, but what exactly is the treatment? And, and then what would be the control to which that treatment was compared? Very exciting, John. And, you know, one of the things that made me excited about the work Give Directly does is exactly that, experimental studies, which are like clinical trials, really. So um, the way we identify the controls is really the same way that we identify the treatment group. Because um, as you, you may be familiar with um, experimental studies, what you're trying to do is almost create a time machine where you have like the same person, give them an intervention, follow them up into the future, and then rewind time and not give them the intervention and follow them up. But because we still don't have a time machine, we try the best that we can. And in this case, we identify communities that are similar. And we do what we call a baseline evaluation based on the outcome we're interested in. So if, for instance, our outcome of interest is nutrition, we do baseline questionnaires to find out how many times the last few days did you not eat, um, did you get eat what you wanted to eat. And then we assign the intervention. I'll give a very basic example. The intervention or treatment in this case would be cash. And so we're trying to study whether giving cash would improve people's nutrition outcomes. And so then we give cash transfers to randomly selected group of people out of that group, and the other group does not get cash. And then follow them up for a predetermined amount of time. And at the end of that time, ask the very same questions that we asked at baseline or do the very same measurements. And any difference that we find between those that receive the treatment, which is cash in this case, and those that did not receive the, the treatment is then said to be as a result of the intervention, which was cash. So that's a very basic explanation of a cash transfer trial. I know that give directly the the cash you receive is is given. I mean, you give out is unconditional, unconditional. Yes. There's no strings attached. Mm -hmm. Why? Yes. Why unconditional cash transfers? And, and what have you found people use the funds for? Uh, our first goal in Give Directly is recipients. Our first value, sorry, is recipients first. And our ethos is that people in poverty are not dumb. They know what they need. 
they know when they need it. And that is why we give the cash unconditionally. And also it goes back to what I said in the beginning that people in poverty have different needs at different times. And so we give the cash unconditionally to give people the agency to make decisions that are right for them as individuals and that are right for their households and sometimes that are also right for their communities. So that is why we do our cash transfers as unconditional cash transfers. Yeah, I, I thought that that was an interesting interesting issue that that you know you're thinking about this f facilitating autonomy and you know this sort of uh, the, mm -hmm. and as you say the the agency of of individuals to determine you know who best knows your need but you and that seems like exactly. it's a, it seems very empowering in that regard uh so you've talked mm -hmm. a little bit about the outcome one being nutrition uh c and you you also mentioned an that there's a certain period of follow-up so, so you know, in reading about some of the the examples, one of the studies you're you're giving this this cash over two months, and and actually the the amount of the cash that was given might be equivalent to the in that two month period might be what what a family would receive in a year, so it was a, it's, mm -hmm. it's quite an infusion for into the lives of of folks. What what is the time frame over which you're going to evaluate change in the communities? So this varies. It depends on the outcome that we are looking at. So in other words, how much time do we think it would take for cash to lead to that change? But also it depends on, are we trying to look at sustainability? So um, we have studies where we have followed up for one year. We have RCTs where we followed up for two years, some three years, some we're still following up for longer time. There's one that we actually have in Kenya. It's uh, the largest universal basic income randomized control trial in the world right now, where the follow-up period is up to 12 years. And so it really depends on what we are, the outcome we're looking at and the sustainability impacts of cash that we are trying to study as well. That actually leads to the question I've been thinking about around sustainability mm -hmm. is that you, mm -hmm. you're giving people this infusion of cash, which seems to mostly be kind of a one-time infusion, even though it's not like over a period of time. But the sort of the structures and the systems that sort of help perpetuate poverty are still in place. So I wonder how does the, how does the organization sort of view it's the way it fits into this fight against poverty, right, which is a systemic problem, but you're sort of going in like in this episodic moment to sort of help and then how do you feel like you fit into that larger that larger picture? Mm -hmm. Great, Rosemary. Thank you for, for that question. And I think this is a question that you could ask to anyone who is doing work in the development sector because there are a number of systemic things that need to be changed for poverty to be completely eradicated. But what we say right now is that if you think about all the development interventions, we feel that at the moment, cash is the best because it addresses multiple needs for multiple people at different times. And also it is probably the most cost effective because I don't know how familiar you are with our work, but our efficiency is in the range of 85 to about 91%, meaning every dollar that we receive, about 90 cents of that goes to the recipients. So what we are saying is at the moment, based on the multiple studies that have been done, it is the best way to do it. Can we do it until something better comes, comes up down the road and then we are happy to move to that? However, that being said is we don't work independently of the systems that are supposed to be improving the systems that perpetuate poverty. So we do work with governments, 
we, the governments are aware of our work. We actually, in all the countries where we work, have a government relationships person. We let them know about the work that we're doing. And in some cases, we have interest from government to support the work we're doing, either by improving the infrastructure that, um, that exists in those areas as well. But also interestingly, we found that cash transfers sometimes on their own are able to improve some infrastructures. For instance, uh, markets without any external input from the government, just having more money in the community we have seen in some places has been able to improve the markets in those areas. So to answer your question, there's no silver bullet. We're doing the best with what we know right now, but also we are working with the governments to hopefully improve the infrastructure that need to be improved. You know, one thing that you mentioned was that some of the follow-up periods for looking at the intervention has gone over 12 years. And, and the example mm -hmm. of that was the universal basic income, which I assume was also something that was continuing for that 12-year window of time, too. So <laughs> it's, that was the treatment was also continuing as well as the, the monitoring. Can, can you describe kind of the, the big, big outcome changes that have been observed or things that, you, you've, that you've seen as part of these interventions? Um, absolutely amazing. I'll just start with the, the most basic, which for many people are the common sense differences, um, consumption. So one of the things we've seen is as soon as people receive cash transfers, the food security is improved. The quality of food that people eat go up immediately. Uh, children are able to go to school. Uh, child labor reduces because now um, families have, have enough money to not have their children working um, when the, instead of going to school. Um, health outcomes improve. I mean, mental. we've seen a lot of improvement in mental health. Intimate partner violence goes down because women now are empowered because they have access to money. People are not only expanding businesses, but also investing in new businesses. And people are brave enough to do it because they have either a large amount of cash that is immediately available to them, or they are assured that on a monthly basis or on a defined basis, they're always they're going to be repeatedly receiving cash transfers. The other thing we've seen is investment in assets. It may be livestock, so a family has access to like milk on a regular basis or, or, or bulls to plow their land, um, investment in land, improvement in the quality of houses. I mean, it is just multiple, the things that people are able to do with their cash transfers. It's just amazing to see it. And sometimes it's interesting. People spend their money on things that you wonder whether it was the right decision. I'll give an example, two examples, if you, if you have the time. One of them was in Kenya. The first time we saw it happen was in Kenya. When people received their cash transfers, they immediately re-roofed their houses from grass thatch to iron sheets. And we've seen that repeated in many countries. So the concern initially was, are these people using their money for the right thing? And the recipient said, you know, when I put iron sheets on my house, then I no longer have the cost of having to re-roof my house. I have access to clean drinking water because I'm harvesting rainwater. My children are not going to get malaria because we no longer have breeding places for mosquitoes in our roof. And also my children are sleeping well, so mental health improves. One other example was a gentleman who, his whole community was buying livestock and he went out and he bought music instruments and he started a band, a music band. And so when our team went out and asked him, why are you spending money on a band? His answer was, not everyone wants a goat. <laughs> I mean, so those are some of the interesting things we've seen. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is Miriam Laker, Global Director of Research at GiveDirectly. 
That brings me to another question I wanted to ask Miriam. So I know that sometimes development projects can get critiqued because they can often be shaped by people coming into a community without really sort of working with the community to figure out what the needs are. How does Give Directly work with communities or interfacing communities as, as you're sort of figuring out, you know, what, what you're doing for them? So like I said, our first value is recipients first. And we try as much as possible to model our programs in a way that suits the recipient's first need. Not just that, not just because we are giving them cash transfers and therefore agency, we also think about um, other components as well. So for instance, we have what we call um, the recipient advocacy team. We have a group that is firewalled from the entire organization. So this group of people, while they're part of Give Directly, they essentially work undercover. And they go out to the communities to find out what do the recipients want? How are our programs affecting the recipients? Is there fraud going on? So we have that constant interaction with our recipients. Right now, we are in the process of coming up with a research project that is asking recipients whether the model that we're using is what they want. So right now we think uh, our model is really great, but we're like, is that what the recipients think? So we initially, the question was, if you tell someone that they're going to receive $1,000, they're all going to want to receive it immediately. And so based on that, uh, we're like, let's do a focus group discussion in three countries, Liberia, in uh, Malawi, and in Kenya. And what was surprising is that people wanted different modalities, even when the money was immediately available to them. And so we're now rolling out a bigger research project to understand uh, recipient needs. And then based on that, we will be able to model our projects or our programs to fit their needs. I, so I'm, I'm now intrigued about this undercover team that you just <laughs> mentioned. That's a, <laughs> so that you, so, so <laughs> So you have this separate group that's sort of going to embed themselves in the same communities where you're you're implementing these these cash awards for action. Exactly. So so what exactly of, have have there been anything surprising that's come out of the the work that this these teams have done? Yes. So um, I think what is surprising is so when you're doing a cash program, especially in a lot of the low and middle income countries, one of the things that people are worried about is corruption. Someone is going to take this money. This money is not going to get to the recipients. And so that is one of the things that our um, recipient advocacy team does and trying to like make sure there is no fraud in the, either by our staff or other people in the community. And what is surprising, uh, what has surprised me is that the amount of cash that we have lost as a result of our projects is really small. So for instance, out of over um a hundred over a hundred million um in cash transfers, we lost less than two hundred thousand dollars. And so for me, that was surprising. Is exactly so the amount of loss that we have as a result of fraud and the like is really really minuscule. So for me, that absolutely was surprising, and it makes me say we need to have these undercover teams working all the time. You mentioned earlier how sort of improvements to markets are something you've seen as far as sort of uh, an impact in the community at large. You know, these these cash payments obviously are going to individuals and to families. What other ways are you tracking the impact of these cash transfers on the community at large? Like, how are you figuring out how that is um, helping the community? 
I'll, I'll point to two studies. So one of them is um, the large refugee RCT that we did in Uganda. And now going forward, all our randomized control trials is we embed a qualitative component in that. And by that, I mean, in addition to getting our quantitative numbers, we also talk to the recipients and ask them how the cash affected them and affected their neighbors and affected their communities. Another example, which I think is the biggest one, is what we call a general equilibrium study. So this was a, um, a randomized control trial that was done in Kenya. The follow-up actually is still going on uh, five years down the road to look at the impact of the cash transfers beyond the household. What happens? Is there inflation? What happens in the community? And what we have seen with that, and I mentioned this earlier, is the there's a multiplier in uh multiplier first of all there was no, no inflation there was zero inflation in places that were well connected to the market and in the more rural settings that had poor connections to the market inflation was less than one percent and even then it was just for immovable goods things like land but in addition to that what we saw was communities that were up to two kilometers away from the communities that had received cash transfers had the exact same level of consumption as the communities that had received cash transfers. So the spillover effect down two kilometers down the road was completely amazing. And then the multiplier impact as well. So we're bringing cash into, into a household, but it multiplies itself in the entire community. And so we're seeing a lot of that happening um, in the projects that we're doing. And not just give directly studies. I mean, this is cuts across all cash transfer programs. You know, when, when you talked about these RCTs, so that you're randomizing mm -hmm. something. So you're randomizing the treatment and you're doing it to communities. So so, so you mm -hmm. have, so are you, you're taking similar communities and then assigning one the intervention the as in the other the control i mean are you block I, i'm sorry this is this is the inside baseball part <laughs> of the show the so, so in terms of the, the methods are you do you, are you blocking on community similar communities before you randomize and how many communities are receiving treatments and how many are are the controls that's a good question so first of all just taking a step back when we're doing experimental evaluation of our studies of our projects, we don't evaluate them ourselves. We work with external evaluators. They may be academics, they may be research organizations, and this is really just to make sure we avoid conflict of interest since really we are the intervention. Initially, uh, and also in countries like the U.S. where people don't live in communities per se, we do what we call individual randomized control trials where the household next door may be receiving cash and the one next door not receiving cash. But in Africa, we found that it leads to a lot of conflict in the community. And so what we do is we identify similar communities, and then we try to get the smallest administrative unit. Usually they're broken down into villages. And so the treatment villages, we try to make sure they're geographically very distant from the control villages so that we do not have the spillover happening. So how many villages are in each group? How many villages would receive like treat the, the, the cash advance, and how many would be their, their, paired, their controls? So it usually, it, it really varies and it depends on what is normally done in the beginning is um, what we call power calculations. In other words, the researchers work out what the minimum number of, we call them clusters, are needed for us to be able to detect a, sm a small difference if there was one. And now the number of villages also varies depending on how large the villages are. For our cities, we try to get as small a village as possible because the way GIVE directly works is we need to saturate the entire village 
And so we make sure the clusters we get are small enough. So one large enough to meet the, re the research objective, but small enough to make sure that we saturate the entire village. So it varies depending from one research project to another. I, yeah, I was, I was wondering if there was some kind of clustered clustered randomization. It sounds, it's, that sounded yes. exactly like what, what you might be doing. Yes, they're clustered, uh, yes. Yeah, and so what, what would you say is an important difference to detect? When you say you're designing mm -hmm. these to detect certain differences, how, how, large, how large of a change would you look for in something like nutrition or would you hope to see based on the interventions you're doing? That's a hard, that's a hard one. So <laughs> I guess at the end of the day, so let's say for nutrition, you may be interested in um, food security and the variety of food people have access to, or you may be interested in actual physical changes. And so what is important is to determine, is this change not just numerically significant, but actually economically, let's say, um, significant. So we have to make that decision as well. And then we say, um, based on the amount of cash that we are giving, what is the smallest possible change that could happen as a result of the cash? And so we use that to power the um, to to power the RCTs that we're doing. But of course, it varies from outcome to outcome, and we, we're thinking about meaningful changes. Yeah, I'm I'm curious what's what's next. What's what you know? So you've 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 been doing this for a while. You've been learning about <laughs> you know different patterns in which intervention may occur, whether it's you know a, a, a large installment over two months or continuous mm -hmm. monthly installments like UBI would reflect. Mm -hmm. I mean, kind of what's what what given what you've learned, what's kind of yeah. the next direction for the this type of intervention that you look think is most promising? I think I'm, there are quite a number, but I will mention two of them. One of them is a concept that is now more and more being called cash plus. And by cash plus it means is it possible to add another intervention on top of cash to get a much bigger impact that you would, than you would get with cash alone or with that intervention alone? Right now, the evidence shows that um, cash plus has no impact. So it's just useless to give a cash plus another intervention. And the other thing is that those inter other interventions are usually very expensive. We've done some randomized control trials called benchmarking studies with USAID where they're comparing like the per dollar impact of their intervention, probably intervention to cash equivalent interventions. But we're saying, is it possible that we're not seeing any impact because people are decide agencies are deciding on the plus that should be given to a community. And right now we're working with a team called the Behavioral Insights Team. We created a cash plus lab. And what we want to do is to go out into communities and find out from the people living in poverty, one, if they actually do want any pluses, and if they do, what are the kind of pluses that they want? And so use that information to design a plus that is being requested for by a community. Then also thinking about things like timing. For instance, we did um, an RCT in Rwanda with USAID where we compared cash alone to an intervention which was skill, skilling youth for entrepreneurship, and we found that cash did better. And the question was, is it because of the way the cash was timed? Because cash and the intervention were timed given at the same time. The question is, should we have given it before? Should we have given it at the end? So we are, those are questions that need to be answered. And then the other one is, 
what would happen if we gave cash transfers, large cash transfers to everyone living in poverty in a country? What would happen? What would happen to poverty? What would happen to macroeconomically? So that is something else that we are seeking to actually be able to do and hopefully to answer as well. Well, Marion, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Yeah, it was well, great having you here. Yeah, it was very interesting. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.